All righty then. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you, as always, for joining me here on Colin. It's such an enormous pleasure for me to be in your presence. Just want to give you a, uh, a bit of an operational update for me and thereby an update on what I've observed thus far uh, over the course of my trip to Poland. Um, I'm currently in Yezef, which is a city in Poland that frankly took me a while to figure out how to pronounce the name of, but it is Yezef. Uh, but it's it's spelled R Z E S Z O W, and this is a city about fifty miles or so from the Ukraine border. So as you might imagine, there's a lot of activity here, including U.S. military activity. And I went and personally took a look at the sort of ad hoc. U.S. military installation that's been erected in the vicinity of an airport in this area. And there are a few things worth noting about it. First, the U.S. military, meaning or the Pentagon rather, as of this point is not allowing any media access whatsoever to these facilities. So this is in Poland. Um, this is in within about 50 miles of the Ukraine border. And they're not even allowing these kind of heavily choreographed and staged managed visits that in other circumstances, they're more than happy to allow journalists to partake in. Um, so am I surprised that I wouldn't be selected for one of those visits? No, uh, but, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, these, these, uh, even in army or uh, you know, military in general installations around the world, they they do often um, kind of express amenability to some sort of officially sanctioned media visit to their um, base of operations, and they're not even allowing that here. Um, so, for example, I mean, there are, there are uh, exercises going on right now in uh, Latvia that, of course, the U.S. is partaking in along with other NATO member states. And for those exercises, uh, you can get some media coverage. I mean, it's sanctioned by the relevant military authorities, obviously, but there are photos and so on um, from those exercises, right, in Latvia. Whereas in, in Poland, it's not being permitted at all, right? And when I uh, have tried to ask soldiers kind of moseying around for um, any information about, you know, what they're up to and what the facility is being used for, I mean, they can't tell anything um, and they are not <laughs> willing to uh, chat, let's say. Um, so, uh, but I've seen just in kind of hanging around, I've seen a you know, large kind of uh, covered military vehicles going back and forth. You often uh, see... Uh, U.S. military personnel like going back and forth between the, so there's like a commercial airport that's open to civilians, and the U.S. military has set up operations adjacent to that airport, and you see uh, military personnel kind of walking back and forth. Um, I, I, uh, I have some photos, and I'm going to post uh, publish in a Substack that I'm working on today. So subscribe to my Substack, obviously, if you haven't already. Um, <clears throat> so that'll probably come out tomorrow. 
Uh, but I, you see, like you know, uh, you know, armored vehicles and all other kinds of um, like kind of heavy duty uh, material being kind of shepherded back and forth. And um, you know, so it's clear, and you know, I've been told this from sources uh, as well as you could look at, find it in the public domain that this facility is being used to um, engineer shipments of U.S. and quote-unquote Western armaments uh, into uh, Ukraine. And this seems to be happening mostly in the dead of night. Uh, if you talk to locals around uh, the area of Yeshev, they'll say, you know, we hear these very loud um, planes uh, at night that are buzzing <coughs> and you can't see them, right, because it's, it's night. Uh, and, you know, to the point that I can, you know, wake them up or startle them. And uh, the public kind of flight records show that, you know, there is very you know, constant activity coming out of this uh, airport in terms of uh, military aircraft. Um, now, one of the mysteries is the exact kind of logistical means by which these weapons are entering into Ukraine. Um, because we're told that the U.S. would not dare fly any of its aircraft into Ukrainian airspace, right? So how are they getting there? Well, it's, it's possible it's overground. I mean, that's probably likely, I would, I would surmise. I, I have seen uh, kind of just convoys of nondescript uh, military-looking vehicles that are lined up in the air, uh, around the airport. You have huge, uh, like commercial-looking um, uh, trucks that are, are also gathered around this airport, um, and so it, it, it's very possible. And it's on, on ground. It's just, but the thing is, we don't know. I mean, they're they're expressly not giving any insight into any of these logistics and uh, the Pentagon spokesperson today reiterated that John Kirby and they'll, they'll claim that they're withholding this information because they don't want to compromise like OPSEC or they don't want to you know, tip off the Russians or something. Uh, but you know, it does occur to me that another potential motivation for not disclosing it is that they're actually violating the assurances that they've given Americans about the nature of U S involvement here. And let's be clear. I mean, there are, more U.S. troops currently in Poland than there have been in decades. Um, the number you see is anywhere from you know ten thousand to fourteen thousand to uh, more. And you, uh, there are occasionally announcements, you know, of additional deployments. So we don't have a firm number on that. Um, uh, so there, there's the architecture here in place uh, to serve as a launch pad for military operations potentially um and you know there's not any real public scrutiny of it so far as i can see i mean the this, this facility that the u.s military has set up adjacent to this airport it's surrounded by this like metallic fencing that they just put in they they, they repurposed a uh, like a convention center type place uh, again adjacent to this airport that is now basically been, you know, commandeered by the U.S. military in conjunction with the Polish authorities. Um, and I keep going back to this theme that I've touched on more uh, over the course of my you know, reporting and, and writing on this situation since this, the invasion happened, which is just the, the, the ambiguity is itself a danger. 
And when I say ambiguity, I mean the express refusal of U.S. officials and sometimes even European officials, Polish officials, to uh, just plainly state what they're doing. And, you know, in a wartime scenario, you understand why they're reticent to do that. But it also is all the more reason to be hyper cautious and hyper uh, vigilant, really, in trying to monitor what the government is doing. And. You know, there are a lot of uh, – especially on the part of the media right now, right? They are fully emotionally and ideologically invested in the Ukrainian side. And I'm not even necessarily uh, dismissing that as an invalid response. Um, I, You know, I think that's a separate argument. What I'm getting at is that when you have that kind of intense investment in one side in a armed conflict, then any reporting, such as on the U.S. attempts to aid and fuel the war, the Ukraine war effort, um, any reporting that might be seen to compromise that war effort is looked at as a huge taboo, right? So if I were to figure out the precise logistics of like a supply line or something going to Ukraine and, and report it, that would be you know, almost treasonous, according to much of the media. So there's not a lot, of whole, a whole lot of interest in uh, getting a firm sense of what's happening on the ground. I mean, you see a little bit of reporting scattered here and there, but nothing that strikes me as consistent with the significance of what potentially might be happening here. I mean, they, the U.S. military just transferred um, missile defense batteries, so basically they're, they're to to Zhezhev, uh, the airport facility that is now this new staging area. Um, and, um, you know, that's a big deal. I mean, that's, that's the U S basically fortifying its missile, uh, launch infrastructure in an area that's very close to the border. And, um, you know, th- this becomes all the more pressing because, uh, just, you know, last, last night, the, uh, the Russian forces bombed this facility, in far western Ukraine, that's probably around you know uh, maybe seventy miles from where I am right now, and um, is the cl- most westwardly that any uh, war uh, warfare has taken place thus far, in terms of the proximity to Poland, which is a NATO member state, which the U.S. is in theory duty bound to uh, ensure the collective defense of. Um, so you, you'd maybe, if you're a curious citizen, I would hope, want to know a bit more about what the U.S. military is actually doing uh, in this region. But there's just not any insight being provided. And it's, you know, I'm doing what I can to, to, to see, see for myself. Um, but, you know, there's, there's limitations there given the – obviously the, the security situation. But I do have some photos um, – that uh, I'm going to publish, so uh, keep an eye out uh, for that. Um, I, I do. Th- I, I I think people are right, though, to interpret this Russian strike on this uh, facility as potentially a significant escalation. I mean, every day there's a new escalation, right? Whether it's from the U.S., Russia, whoever, um, and the trajectory is all going in one direction, and this is a continuation of that because this facility was uh, where the U.S. military had done its, quote, training missions in Ukraine. I mean, the, just last year, 2021, 
this facility uh, in western Ukraine was the site of a major uh, U.S. Uh, military exercise uh, along with Poland and the Ukrainian military. Um, and so, it, you know, it's called uh, Yavo Riv, or Yavo Riv. And, uh, you know, this kind of underscores something else that I've been trying to emphasize throughout this, which is that this whole notion of NATO expansion in a way is predicated on a bit of a fallacy because whether or not – Ukraine was ever going to formally ascend to NATO membership, it's still very much the case that NATO infrastructure had already expanded into Ukraine. So there was already a kind of all-out attempt on the part of the U.S. and NATO to enhance what it calls interoperability with the Ukrainian military. In 2020, uh, Ukraine was elevated by NATO to this, you know, enhanced partner status. So yeah, it didn't have formal membership and it didn't have all, you know, the, the benefits conferred by formal membership like the Article 5 guarantee and like, um, you know, full integration into the architecture of NATO. But it, it's not like uh, this is a foreign land to NATO. I mean, they're there. They've been there constantly over the years. And Putin's referenced this directly uh, many times, uh, not just during this period of the invasion, but in the months and years leading up to it. And actually when he announced the invasion, he, he cited this very uh, issue. Um, so this might not be something that most Americans are acquainted with, but Putin is very clearly acquainted with it. And uh, people in this part of uh, Poland are very much aware that there's this major U.S. military presence. And it's, not, it's also NATO troops. I mean, you go and... Talk to people, and then and they're they're very much conscious of the presence of you know British troops, French troops, American troops in this part of Poland. Um, you know, I was talking to one uh, restaurant worker, and he was saying that they had to like revamp their whole process for producing meat because there are so many more uh, soldiers uh, in the area who are demanding like uh, to have you know big appetites and need to be fed lots of meat. So, you know, they're, they have to rejigger their supply chain, if you like, to uh, provide for that. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, – I guess that's my, my update. Uh, I mean I just – I guess just the, the general conclusion that I want to impart is that the U.S. is a combatant here. I mean the U.S. – this should have been clear whether or not you have any familiarity with the ins and outs of its presence in Poland – um, they, they, I mean, U.S. officials proudly tout how uh, determined they are to continue the flow of weaponry into Ukraine. But I guess once you see it firsthand, like once you actually see the <laughs> the troops in the flesh and you see the vehicles moving about and you see the uh, flights taking off and the uh, measures that have been imposed to uh, shroud the logistics from public view, you get just a better, more uh, more visceral understanding of what it means for the U.S. to be a, a combatant in a war zone, even if it's not as yet, as far as we know, engaging in direct warfare. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the Russian government did say that it regards these supply lines as legitimate targets. Uh, that preceded the attack on the Yavoriv uh, training facility that had been the site of all this U.S. military and uh, NATO activity over the past several years. And uh, yeah, it's just a yet another uh, escalation. So 
Um, hope that gives you some insight. Um, but uh, yeah, there's uh, more more I could touch on here. But I did want to open it up uh, to anybody who has any thoughts. And uh, let's go to Matthew. Uh, hello, Michael. How are you? Um, okay, thanks. Yeah, hope you're holding up okay uh, over there in Poland. Yeah, um, I'm good. From, from the United Kingdom, so I'm not too far away. But uh, you're probably, it's probably like about midnight there or uh, 11? Uh, it's, it's 10.47, yeah. Okay, 11 o'clock, okay. Um, so I, uh, have heard you confirm, uh, my, what I would have expected based on what I know about Poland, that in, in previous conversations that, um, there's, you know, pretty broad consensus of not only, um, and you, you tell me if this characterization is incorrect, but not only, uh, that obviously Russia is doing this wrong, but that some kind of escalation, the part of the West and NATO and the United States, like a no-fly zone is justified. Does that seem like a fair characterization or no? Of just the folks you've talked to. Um, well, I, I guess the way I would put it is the most widespread kind of universally shared sentiment that I've observed is that people believe that Ukraine like is not the end, right? They think that Poland is at imminent risk. Um, whether they necessarily endorse the concept of a no-fly zone can be hazy just because of the euphemistic quality of that term and the reluctance on the part of a lot of Poles to actually engage militarily themselves. I mean, they would love to just kind of uh, have the U.S. do it on their behalf, <laughs> as you saw with the whole bizarre diplomatic snafu a couple of days ago and with the with Poland essentially calling the bluff of the U.S. and trying to get them to facilitate the transfer of these MiGs, uh, fighter jets into Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, I think you're you're not too far off in your, your characterization, but um, um, the way I would basically summarize it is just that kind of underlying uh, fear and, and, and paranoia. And I don't even mean paranoia as like a pejorative. I mean, sometimes maybe you can be rightly paranoid. Um, but just this uh, basically uh, kind of fundamental belief that you know it doesn't end here and something more uh, needs to be done. It's just I think a lot of polls are sort of uh, non-committal as to what they would like that to actually consist of. Yeah, I, I think I think there is. A, I'm going to be a little more uh, explicit than um, you. I think there is a paranoia on the part of. Of folks, of a lot of folks in Poland, that is rooted in very understandable historical grievances against Russia, but isn't necessarily consummate with um, contemporary geopolitics. If you look at, uh, you know, I, I've been to Russia uh, many times. If you lo- listen to the most kind of ardent Russian nationalists, other than like kooks or people who are like banned by Russian hate speech laws, they do talk about getting back land in Ukraine, right? But there isn't this talk about reuniting the um, the former Warsaw Pact states or whatever in some new Russian-dominated Eastern Europe is, is I think, quite fringe and is rooted in understandable uh, historical, historically based anxieties from you know what the what, what the Soviet Union did in the Second World War to Poland, uh, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, I, I, I guess I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> When I say that they're paranoid, 
that's more a neutral description of me as what I of what I deserve their sentiment to be more so than like an irrational me me ascribing irrationality to them. I mean, maybe a lot of it is irrational, um, but you know, I guess maybe as a foreign visitor, I'm a little reluctant to just tell people that they're necessarily irrational, even if that maybe is the case, um, because you know, I just don't. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know what the the future holds, um, and you know they're the ones who are on the border here. Uh, so, I mean, just imagine. <laughs> I think I think in the main they're probably more uh, sensible and grounded than I would imagine a lot of Americans would be if there was a large war happening a few miles from them. Uh, in terms of the theories that they hold about how it could potentially implicate them and so on and so forth. Um, does it strike me as plausible that they're next in line for this reconstitution of the Soviet Union? No, it doesn't strike me as plausible. And you're right. I don't really see much uh, basis for speculating to that effect uh, given you know, its seemingly uh, fringe support as, a kind of, as an ambition within Russia itself. But I don't know. I guess maybe I'm in a, pos- a position where I'm inclined to just be uh, maximally uh, humble here about – potential outcomes um and you you also bear in mind that you know some jeopardization of poland might not necessarily result from like a a preemptive invasion or something by russia it could be that there is some you know escalation that stems from russia targeting like a u.s convoy or u.s uh, supply line or something that just happens to be in polish territory right um so in other words, in other words, there's not there's like some conceivable scenarios where Poland ends up in a precarious situation, uh, but that aren't necessarily uh, the result of some like preordained ideological goal on the part of Putin to reconstitute the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, there was an incident in terms of, of paranoia. I would argue there was a problem with with, with paranoia. Among among some polls of Russian intentions, and, and like one example I'd cite in this respect is in 2010, there was a crash of an aircraft, a Polish aircraft in Smolensk. Yeah, and yeah. there was a number of prominent poles um, um, uh, on board and, and who died. And um, people. Well, it was Polish- basically the entire government. I mean, it was the president. Yeah. It was the the head head of the military, uh, and so on. Yeah. So. Yeah, but there's still there's no effort. You have to have evidence right or it's just a conspiracy theory it just alleged that the russians killed them all and this yet this is a widespread meme in polish uh, political culture well the 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 twin brother of the president um alleges this yeah alleges this yeah, yeah. the president who died in the 2010 crash that is right and who is now he's now the head of the uh, the party that his brother uh, once What's led? And he, I mean, we like to compare it to, and like, I, you know, you're not allowed to make these comparisons because of our ridiculous world culture. But I would compare the, you know, very straightforward victimization uh, of, it's not like Hungary, where Hungary is engaged in, gen, in, in its own right in genocide of Jews and, and an aggressive war against the Soviet Union. Like, Poland is, is legitimately a victim, right? They're attacked by the, by the Soviets. But, you know, just because there's a legitimate victim, victim uh, narrative, and there, there, there's the cat and mask where tens of thousands were killed, for example, and a pretty brutal Polish People's Republic like as a rump state. It, it doesn't mean you, that we shouldn't be skeptical of what, you know, 
a Polish political com- culture that emphasizes victimhood states, just as though I think any sane person who's American would acknowledge and show respect for the legacy of African-American um, suffering is, and, and, and a special kind of history in the United States it should be respected. It doesn't mean you should ratify every claim of racism, right? Yeah, no, I think there is something to that analogy, actually. And I'm not trying to, just to be clear, ratify every Polish grievance that I'm, covering, I'm coming across. I'm, I'm more just interested in relaying as accurately as I can what I see and try to, to ascertain how it relates to the current situation. But yeah, I, I think uh, particularly the fears about the Soviet Union as such being reconstituted, I mean, that, that does strike me as more in the realm of just pure paranoia. I mean, there's no evidence that I can see that Putin has any desire to reconstitute the Soviet Union as such. Like he even even in his speech before the invasion, he repudiated like the foundational tenets of the Soviet Union and actually blames the whole Ukraine situation on Lenin. Um, so, and there's no pretext. Yeah. I mean, there's a pretext. This invasion obviously is. Immor- I mean, I feel stupid for saying this over and over again. It's kind of to use the pejorative term cocked, a kind of vulgar 4chan term, but it is kind of cocked. But of course, it's morally wrong to create a refugee crisis to kill all these poor people. But, I mean, there was a pretext that he could sell his people on, right? Like, it's the, the Donbass region, and also the revanches and Ukrainians are really Russians. There isn't this pretext for invading Poland or the Baltic states. I mean, I just... I, it doesn't strike me as remote. It strikes me as as quite mad. Well, again, I mean, if then, it then, happens, then, I would like stop talking on politics. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, so- but 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 like I said, I mean, maybe I wasn't clear enough. But I don't think there has to necessarily be that kind of fully formed ideological sweeping pretext in order for something to happen which jeopardizes Polish security, right? I mean, let's just say that Putin attacks one of these supply lines that. Uh, come from Poland into Ukraine. I mean, that, that could, put, in theory, be you know a, an attack on Polish territory. Maybe it's not a full invasion or something. But you know, if Poland were to be bombed, I could that that could then very easily trigger some kind of Article Five response. Um, so it's it's more it's more about how the path to wider escalation, uh, as far as I can tell, seem to run through Poland more so than. Putin has this diabolical plan where Poland is like next on his list of targets to invade for some sweeping ideological reason, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think that's correct. And, and I, again, as I said the other night, I really commend what you're doing there because, uh, you know, in the America's the worst by far, but like the, the English speaking world is really bad generally. There just is a lot of, as, as you know, great as we are in innovation and technology and science and, and like STEM and leading the world, we're really fucking ignorant about <laughs> like, which is strange because we have people from all over the world. I mean, like my, you know, my dad is English. My mom is Egyptian, but like until I, until I studied and learned a little bit more about the world, I was completely ignorant. Like, I don't know why, but we're so fucking ignorant of the world. It doesn't make sense because we're a country of immigrants, but yet we're so insular. And so I think it's very important what you're doing because most people are getting really American perspectives and seeing this in the context of, you know, Trump or just kind of silly partisan political narratives. Whereas what you should be talking about are the views of Poles, the views of 
Hungarians. Yeah. Romanians. Well, actually, you know, and that's a that's a good point in, in that the frivolity of how so much of this is discussed in an American context is really uh, hits home when you are abroad and you see just how directly and kind of uh, potently um, people elsewhere who have no concept of those kind of asinine squabbles, uh, how, how they're experiencing something like this. Um, although I do have to say that, you know, I have talked to some polls who seem to be a little too <laughs> aware of American media coverage and, like, ha- have you know, have theories about how this all, this all connects to Trump, like, being compromised by oh, really? Putin and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah one or funny. two. I mean, I don't I don't want to exaggerate, you know, how many, uh, but, but a, a couple. That's hilarious. Yeah. I know, I know, I, I don't know polls really, but I know, I know a number of Russians, like I mentioned, as a caller before, and, you know, I, I know Russians who are, who are very pro i even talked to a gentleman who had a, a stalin man he was a really i mean i obviously think his views are horrible but he's a human being and he has you know those are his views he had a stalin magnet on his refrigerator you know right. i went to his doctor's country home and he he expressed a view that um you know i don't not by violent means but but with some means like eastern ukraine should become part of Russia and kind of revanchist views, but he said like he didn't want to reconstitute the Soviet Union either. The, the other, the other, but he said that's a crazy idea. The the other thing that Russians regard as crazy is like the hard. I'll say the hard Russiagate stuff. They regard as completely absurd, whether they like Putin or not. Like the soft stuff, like that. Like troll farms are created to promote Sean King. I think that's that's kind of yeah. that doesn't really matter. Who cares, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I would say the most common response, uh, the most common sentiment I've encountered among polls thus far is almost uh, uh, an anxiety about even discussing the issue. <clears throat> like they don't even want to think about what could happen. I mean, that's how like, they're almost trying to block it out of their minds. You know, um, they're obviously aware of it and, you know, <laughs> uh, by necessity, just because of how it could implicate them directly. But there's a lot of, um, Kind of intentional blocking out of the, the the avenues of escalation that might be on the offing here. Um, all right, well, thank you, uh, Matthew, and uh, gonna go to Andrew. Andrew, please unmute. Yep. Hello, Michael. Hey. Um, so yeah, I don't think just a real quick comment on what the last caller was talking about. I, I don't think that the first step to reforming the Soviet Union would be um, starting a uh, poorly executed war to enforce the neutrality of one country. It doesn't exactly seem like the most triumphant first step. It seems more like a position of weakness move to me, the way that this uh, is going, playing out right now. Um, would you agree with that? Because it, it doesn't seem, I mean, even the ideological argument seems to be defeated by what is actually happening that this is uh this would be the first step to- um well i mean if you follow u.s media coverage there definitely is this tendency to declare that you know putin is calculated or that the resistance has been stronger than he ever could have dreamed of in ukraine and his military objectives are faltering and maybe that some of that is true around the margins but you know i think if you look at it in the grand scheme of things right i mean we're now what uh 16 days into an invasion and they you know seem to have Kiev uh, encircled. They've uh, abducted a couple of mayors. 
in the south. Uh, they're connecting like the land bridge between Crimea and the east and so on and so forth. I mean, they're, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that Ukrainians would be constantly begging and trying to find pretext for U.S. military intervention if they were confident in their ability to ward off the invasion. Um, so, I mean, I just think that you know, a lot of people were a little bit too presumptuous and like just proclaiming this was some kind of military defeat on, on Putin's part with only a couple days having passed. Um, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it took, what, like three weeks or something for the U.S. to uh, conquer Baghdad in 2003? So, you know, and with the, you know, the biggest, most powerful military in the world and a coalition of supporting military forces and, and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, are there p- potential um, flaws that have been exposed in Russian military operations? Sure, but I, I'm hesitant to get on board with kind of the, the uh, almost celebratory or triumphalist uh, depictions of Russia as this kind of faltering power uh, as yet. Um, I mean, they're, they're, and also it's reflected in, in U.S. politicians more and more desperately declaring that they are determined to see to it that Ukraine like fights till the end, like that they need to win, right? Um, and that we need to be doing ever more to ensure that like the, the Ukrainian resistance prevails. Um, like I, I don't know, their actions don't necessarily bespeak confidence in the ability of Ukraine to actually achieve military victory. Um, but I, I mean, I, I do agree that it doesn't necessarily portend as far as I can tell some kind of wider desire to reconstitute, to do like <laughs> embark upon the crazy ideological project of reconstituting the Soviet union. Um, yeah, I would agree with everything you said. I was, I, I would more focus on not the fact that how poorly or well the campaign has gone, but the fact that basically Russia has decided to do this where they've basically, I mean, this is explicitly over the neutrality of Ukraine. This isn't about, you know, the goals are stated. So the premise that this is in service of the reconstitution of a, of a Soviet Union, it just doesn't seem like having to launch a military operation to enforce the neutrality of a country on your border is the start to that. Um, yeah. However it goes. I, yeah. I mean, I think you know the people who are claiming that it's the first step in their, you know, madcap campaign to reconstitute the Soviet Union. Um, they would point more to the element of the justification where Putin is you know, denying essentially the agency of Ukrainians as like a real people or a distinct country, and uh, that he would could use the same logic as applied to like Moldova or um, you know, the Baltics or something like that. Um, now, does that necessarily entail anything related to the Soviet Union? No. I mean, it could just be a, a different kind of logic of imperial expansion. Um, but no, but I think you're probably right. I, mean, I think, I, I think that, that explanation is overblown by people who want to – I mean the w- one reason why you see a lot of uh, both Poles and Americans imbuing such existential importance to the outcome in Ukraine is because they're saying that you know, if, you, if Putin does win in Ukraine, then these additional 
invasions are inevitable, right? So, like, if if he does, if he's not stopping Ukraine, then he's going to go somewhere else, whether it's the Baltics or Poland or Moldova or what have you. Um, and a, 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 eventually, they claim, like Rick Scott, the senator from Florida, said this. Eventually, the U.S. is going to get embroiled in it anyway, because it's going to be a NATO country that's in the crosshairs. Um, so, therefore, the U.S. must now do everything within its power to ensure like a battlefield victory in Ukraine. And I think that's um, that's a big reason why you see uh, ever more escalation, including this whole idea now that there's some sort of biological or chemical attack imminent in uh, Ukraine. And, you know, I just uh, saw an hour or so before starting this call in that uh, Lindsey Graham is saying, you know, that although he had been he had not been fully on board yet with a no-fly zone. He is prepared to endorse the no-fly zone if there is a chemical attack. Um, now, this, that, that still seems like a long shot possibility at this juncture, but, you know, things are moving quickly and there are, you know, a- again, avenues to escalation beyond just like the all-out <laughs> uh, point of no return option of a no-fly zone, um, including, you know, R- Russia continuing its apparent uh, intention to bomb these supply routes. And uh, who knows if an American might get caught up in that, um, given, particularly given the lack of insight that the official authorities are uh, allowing as, as to how these supply routes are actually being uh, executed. Regarding that, do you believe that the secrecy and uh, opacity of this operation of moving whatever materials from Poland into Ukraine is more towards just the Western public than it is like maybe there are kind of behind the scene negotiations or understandings where red lines are drawn and understood between people in the Biden administration or Biden himself and in Russia where they have kind of talked about these things through or do you think that's just uh, optimistic thinking and then also as a second follow-up to that uh, after seeing Kamala's trip to Poland it makes me wonder would those red lines be different if someone like Kamala was in charge or do you think it's more of the uh, bureaucracy around them that's going to be determining these things well I mean it would just be speculation I mean mean, I I do know or at least it's been claimed that there's an active deconfliction line in place that the U.S. apparently tests once or twice a day just to ensure that the Russians on the other end pick up the line. Um, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of, like, policy discussion happening on those calls. It's just like this last resort communications method that they have available to them. Um, so I would be surprised if there was any kind of concession on Russia's part to like acquiescing to the existence of these supply lines. I mean, the, 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 the existence of these supply lines and the NATO infrastructure writ large that has been encroaching ever more into Eastern Europe and even Ukraine itself. I mean, again, that was an explicit rationale cited by Putin for the invasion. But again, this is, the, this is just speculation on my part. I don't know. Um, as far as Kamala, I mean, I, I, I think, um, <laughs> you know, I was listening to a, a uh, an interview with the Ukrainian defense minister today. And he made a criticism of U.S. policy that I think is actually valid, at least in its kind of logical formulation, which is, and you've heard other people say this, but, you know, how is it that a fighter jet being 
brought into Ukraine is like massively escalatory, but Stinger missiles shipped into Ukraine using logistical methods that are unclear and then uh, being used to shoot down fighter jets or uh, shoot down Russian jets. That's not unacceptably escalatory. And, you know, I don't have a good explanation. I don't haven't heard a good explanation for that or a good answer to that question. I mean, I think it's a fair enough question, you know, Um, and maybe it's just the case that Biden arbitrarily drew a red line. Um, and that, you know, clearly other U.S. officials uh, or uh, other potential presidential uh, candidates or, uh, and so on uh, have different red lines. And, uh, you know, it's impossible to say how that would work out in practice. I actually didn't follow the Kamala meeting that closely despite being in Poland because you know, it's just uh, – so maybe you'll have to apprise me on what actually – happen there she just confused the uh northern border with the oh yeah i did border. see that yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah i very reassuring on behalf of the <laughs> united states very good move i i almost thought it was a troll when i heard that she was sent i thought okay is this like a spit in the face to poland right now or is this actually a serious gesture and i guess it has to be considered serious since she is the vice president but uh i'm i would imagine that the polish aren't very happy with you know the level of attention that Biden is basically just saying, you know, he's putting his foot down kind of. And that's why I'm wondering, is this Biden or is this, and, you know, it's, it's impossible to know, but there do seem to be these red lines that are almost, I, I'm hoping that there are red lines that are understood. Like there were red lines that were drawn and this is just how it's because Russia, I believe did say that they would attack incoming supplies from NATO. Well, Russia. yeah, they just, they, they just reiterated that like a day ago and, and then a couple hours later, there was this attack on the uh, so-called training facility in far western Ukraine. Um, so, in which that which was interpreted as by by people as uh, an attempt by Russia to disrupt some of these supply lines, even though the U.S. won't confirm that this training facility has anything to do with its supply lines, but it will be a natural staging area for you know munitions and stuff flowing from. Jezhev, Poland, where I am right now. Um, but again, because of the lack of transparency and the lack of initiative on the part of journalists to demand transparency, because they think the denial of transparency is actually good in this instance, because it's in furtherance of the Ukrainian war effort. And we're just in the dark in a lot of on a lot of key areas, uh, including um, in the dark on details that might help us better. Like apprehend what these red lines really are. Uh, one last parting thought, and thank you for your time. Have you uh, considered reaching out to Scott Horton and potentially uh, going on to his show to explain any of your perspective? Because I think he'd be a great outlet for you. And I've just talked to Aaron Maté about the, uh, I think there's a need for a anti-war coalition. You've talked about this before. I think you wanted to do something in your local area. And uh, yeah. I think that we need to find allies wherever they are and think that it should start in the media sphere. It would be easiest to start in the media sphere. Yeah, well, I, I've been on Scott Horton's show before. Um, you know, I would know, I would definitely do it again if asked. Uh, as far as me organizing some kind of anti-war coalition, well, um, <laughs> I came to Poland, so it didn't quite materialize as quickly as I might have hoped. Uh, maybe because my own, my own disorganization. Um, and if you're if you're uh, <laughs> relying on the media. 
to uh, spearhead this, uh, you might not be in the greatest place. Um, well, I just think there needs to be an area of the media where people can actually get somewhat uh, a skeptical view of things and a, a more honest, um, you know, layout of the facts, which is why so many people follow people like you. And, you know, I, I just think that uh, boosting each other's work is valuable. So I commend that. Uh, thanks yeah. for your time. Well, doing what I can. Thanks, Andrew. Um, just as a parting thought for me, uh, I did have a pretty long uh, substack that came out on Friday where I uh, interviewed the kind of lead activists organizing for the no-fly zone uh, from a, P- a Polish standpoint, um, at least in the Krakow, Poland area, and um, talked to some Pol- some uh, Ukraine refugees about their thoughts on the no-fly zone uh, and also got some kind of direct uh, accounts from U.S. military uh, personnel about what they're up to in Ukraine. So this was uh, this was from the Krakow area, not from uh, Zhezhev, where I am now, where I'm currently doing reporting. Um, but, you know, might be of interest if you've uh, taken the time to listen to this call <laughs> on a uh, Sunday afternoon slash evening. Um, All right, everybody. Well, uh, thank you for joining as always. And uh, I was on, um, I don't know if you saw it, I was on uh, Glenn Greenwald's show with his uh, partner Q a few days ago. So might be doing more stuff like that. And uh, I'll also try to this week hopefully get a guest on. So it's not just me um, soliloquizing. Is that a word? Or doing soliloquies at you for every call-in show. But uh, trying to juggle a bunch of things here in the uh, wild west of Eastern Europe. (laughs) So uh, we'll see how it goes. All right, everybody. Uh, Thanks again for joining, and we'll talk more soon. Bye.